Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 38 and reading through to the end of the chapter. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his, mothers and brothers, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace and mercy to us that you have uh, not left us ignorant of yourself but uh, rather that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly through the creation uh, in the person of your son Jesus and uh, through your infallible word. We thank you, Father God, that uh, Jesus has not left us as orphans but rather that he sent the Holy Spirit who fills our hearts and our minds and our lives that uh, we are drawn to you and that uh, you reveal to us uh, your truth. Father, we pray for ourselves here in this uh, part of the building and for the Sunday school this morning, that as we hear from your word, that we would uh, respond with faith, with repentance and with love and joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Arthur King Robinson is a British man who became famous a couple of years ago for losing a bet. Uh, it wasn't a bet at the horses or a bet at the casino. Uh, he, he actually bet 500 pounds with a bookmaker that he would die before the end of the year. And the bookmaker gave him odds of six to one that that uh, would happen. So the idea was that if he was dead before, uh, or on or before December the 31st, then he would win the prize. Uh, he would win £6,000. Uh, he was 91 years old, so the bookie was not prepared to offer him any better odds than 6 to 1. But he only needed £6,000 in any case. Uh, the reason for it was this, apparently because of some legal quirk, uh, if he died before the 31st of December, then his wife was going to be hit with an, with an inheritance tax bill of £6,000. 
and so that is why he took the bet. It was kind of like an insurance policy for his wife. But he lived, and therefore he lost the bet. I can tell you there's never been a man more happy to lose a bet than uh, Arthur King Robinson. Uh, he was pretty happy that he lost the bet. His wife was happy that he lost the bet. Uh, even the bookie, was, well, the bookie was happy that he lost the bet, not, because, not just because the, uh, the bookie pocketed the, uh, uh, the 500 pounds or whatever it was, uh, but the bookie actually liked Arthur, and the bookie didn't want to be profiting from someone uh, dying. Now, gambling is a terrible thing. Uh, you might want to bear that in mind this coming Tuesday, by the way. Uh, gambling is a terrible thing. But imagine betting on your own life or betting on someone else's life. Imagine betting whether a person would be alive or dead after a certain date or a certain event. I mean, how would you work out the odds for that? Um, Arthur King Robinson's bookie was only prepared to offer him short odds because he was 91 years of age. And uh, there's no 91-year-olds here, to, here today, is there? No, I mean, he thought, well, there's a reasonable chance that he maybe won't make it through to New Year's Day of the next year. But what if it was impossible that a person would live beyond a certain date or that they would live beyond a certain event? Uh, what if there was something which no bookmaker in the world would be prepared to take a bet on. Uh, what would we call that sort of thing? We'd call it a work of God, wouldn't we? We'd call it a miracle of God if someone was to live beyond a date or live beyond an event that no bookie would be prepared to take a bet on. That would be a miracle. Now, I raise this because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse uh, 38, which you might want to have open in front of you, uh, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, approached Jesus and you'll see that they said to him there, we would like you to perform a miraculous sign. Now, if you've been uh, with us over this period of time as we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel, you would see that that seems to be a very strange request, doesn't it? Because what, what has Jesus been doing uh, for people? What has he been doing? He's been... He's been healing the sick, hasn't he? He's been uh, curing people that have been blind or have been deaf. He's been driving out demons from people. Jesus has been doing some extraordinary miracles for all people to see. And yet, that's not good enough because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are asking for something more, something better perhaps. Now, Jesus could have dazzled them, couldn't he? Uh, Jesus would only need to speak a word and the sun would turn black. Uh, Jesus would only need to speak a word and the moon would melt. He could do that because he is God the creator. He could have performed a miracle of such magnitude that it would be irrefutable that he is who he said he was, the Messiah. But this is not a genuine request. Um, they these scribes, these Pharisees, they don't believe that Jesus can do such a miracle. And what they're wanting to do here is that they're wanting to discredit him. They've failed to be able to discredit him so far, but they're asking him for such an incredible miracle that no one would be able to deny that he's the Messiah, not believing that he can do it. They want to discredit Jesus. 
But Jesus will not play their game. And so he responds to them in verse 39. Have a look at verse 39. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, Jesus there says that they are a wicked and an evil generation. Uh, Four times in this passage he refers to this generation and in, uh, in verse 45 he again refers to them as being a wicked generation. Now, when you think of the face of evil, uh, what do you think of? Uh, You think of something which is quite hideous, don't you? Uh, When I think of the face of evil, I think of uh, mass murderers. I think of people who have uh, committed crimes against humanity. I think of Adolf Hitler's and the Stalin's and the Pol Pot's of the world. But yet, this is not these particular men. These were moral, upright, religious men. These were the clergy of the day. These were the ministers. And yet Jesus considers them to be evil and wicked. Why is that so? Well, hold that thought. Because what we see here is that Jesus doesn't rule out the idea of doing a great miracle for them, does he? He doesn't rule rule out that idea altogether. In verse 39, he says, No sign shall be given except the sign of, what does he say? Jonah. No sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. And you think to yourself, well, that's left field. I mean, how does, where does Jonah come into this? I mean, what's what's that all about? What is the sign of Jonah? Uh, Let's uh, think about that for a few moments, shall we? Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I've heard a sermon on Jonah, it's always been a missionary, and the missionary's been, you know giving us the missionary call to, uh, to be prepared to go to the hard places to take the gospel. Uh, you've probably been to uh, listen to sermons like that, and that's a great thing. And we all love the, uh, the children's Bible pictures, don't we, with the, uh, the, the, the cute whale uh, spurting out uh, the sort of happy but a bit confused Jonah out, out from its water spout. Uh, we love these things, but we can miss the point of Jonah. Uh, You probably know the story of Jonah. Um, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh uh, to warn the people there that God was going to judge them. But Jonah didn't want to go there, not because he didn't want to do the trip. Jonah didn't want to go there because he didn't actually want to warn them. And Jonah didn't want to warn them because he actually didn't want them to be spared from God's judgment. Now, why was that so? Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jonah hated the Ninevites. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but Nineveh is a place that you can go to today. Uh, Although I must, I I suggest that probably DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades, probably issued a warning against going there. Uh, It's now called Nabi Yunus, which means, by the way, Prophet Jonah. That's what the place is now called. It's an archaeological mound. Uh, It's in Iraq, which is why you'll get the DFAT warning against going there for your annual holidays. Uh, It is just across the Tigris River from the city of Mosul. And you would have been aware of Mosul because that's been in the news because of the war in Iraq and so on. So it's not a great place to go to for a holiday, 
but I want to say that Nineveh is an actual place, and there it is, it's in Iraq today. But in Jonah's day, it was the main city of Assyria. And the Jews hated the Assyrians, and with good reason. Uh, the Assyrians were a, were a sadistic and a brutal military force. In the 8th century BC, they decimated the northern kingdom of Israel and took people out of there into exile in Assyria and repopulated it and annexed it as a province of Assyria. A bit later on in 705 BC, before the Babylonians gained ascendancy, the Assyrians also attacked the southern kingdom of Judah and they either killed or deported at least two-thirds of the population. Their war crimes were hideous. And so when we understand that background, uh, we can see that the book of Jonah is no longer this kind of cute children's story about a, um, a happy whale and a you know, reluctant preacher, uh, because to Jonah, Nineveh was the face of evil. If you said to, an, uh, to a Jew, you know, what do you think of when you think of evil? They think Assyria. They think of Nineveh, its capital city. That is evil. And so Jonah actually wanted them to be judged. And we can understand that. Now, of course, again, the story, Jonah ran from God. He jumped onto a boat. There was a great storm. The sailors on the boat recognised that the storm was the work of God and there was someone there who was, God wasn't happy with and so Jonah fessed up to that. They tossed Jonah over the bo- overboard and he was swallowed by a great fish and he lived in its belly for three days and three nights. Now, for some people, some people say, well, that is a nice story, good for teaching in Sunday school, but it's a Jewish myth. Um, I'm no marine biologist, of course, but you know, surely the combination of digestive acids, uh, lack of oxygen, flooding of water, and all of the other factors. If, I mean, if you wanted to bet on Jonah being dead, not by the end of the year, but dead within about three minutes, uh, no bookmaker would take that bet because the odds were pretty impossible that he wouldn't die after being consumed by a whale. To survive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, it's not possible. (laughs) It's impossible. Which is precisely the point. Because it is a work of God. It was a miracle. In Jonah chapter 3, God commanded the fish, we're told. And the fish... There's no delicate way of putting this. Spewed Jonah up onto dry land. So after that experience, Jonah set his face to Nineveh. He had to go. He went to Nineveh and he told them that unless they turned to God, that within 40 days they would be destroyed. Now, I reckon that he would have told them the story about the fish as well, don't you? Uh, It's actually only one line in the book of Jonah as to what he actually said, but we know that he preached there for three days. So how then did these evil, brutal, godless, idol-worshipping pagans respond? Well, back to Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, 
so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with the with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here you see Jonah's experience is a pointer to Jesus Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and by the way in uh, in Hebrew thinking three days and three nights isn't literally three 24-hour periods it's just saying three days in the way we would say three days uh, it's uh, just a, a thing of, if in their language and their culture but uh, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and so too Jesus for Jesus will be delivered to the heart of the earth that is to the grave but only for three days for Jesus against all odds the absolute impossibility that something that no bookmaker would take a bet on Jesus would rise again from the grave in the miracle of the resurrection that's the first thing secondly when Jonah preached the Ninevites repented I wonder if you might uh, keep a bookmark or something in Matthew 12 and come with me to Jonah chapter 3 you'll find it on page 655 if you'd like to turn to that Jonah chapter 3 let's see what happened here I think the book of Jonah is one which we need to preach through in entirety at some stage. It would be a great book to have a look at. <clears throat> now in Jonah chapter 3, let's uh, pick it up at uh, verse, uh, say verse 4. Uh, on the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed, 40 more days and the Ninevites will be overturned. Now, here's their response. The Ninevites believed God... They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, saying, By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. For everyone, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, the Lord may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, back to Matthew 12. Because as Jesus stares down the clergy of his day, he reminds them of this. He reminds them that on the great day of judgment, that the Ninevites, these pagan Assyrians, these enemies of God's people, he's saying they will actually be standing in judgment on you and they will condemn you. That's what he says. Now, what does that say about the Pharisees? 
How evil does Jesus think that they are? Friends, all people, uh, in a sense, are evil. Uh, In the sense that all people are sinful. But the heart of sin is to reject God. And when a person rejects Jesus, they're rejecting God. Uh, There are many people whom we would consider to be good, moral, upright people, the kind of people you'd like to have move in next door to you. People who might even be good churchgoers, religious people and so on. But these things can actually act as a, as a camouflage for the pers- of the person's heart. Uh, we've seen in Matthew's Gospel that as Jesus comes face to face with people, that in a sense he, he divides people uh, because his presence exposes what's going on inside their hearts. Uh, we've, some, we've seen some people who've responded wonderfully to to Jesus. Uh, At his birth in Luke's Gospel, you've got Simeon and Anna, people who loved God, and at the news that the Saviour was born, they just rejoiced and said, I'm ready to go to heaven now, you know. Uh, We've seen in Matthew's Gospel, um, John the Baptist, how he loved God and how he immediately recognised Jesus and responded to who he is. We've seen the, 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 the disciples who responded to Jesus, all but one of them, ultimately but with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law most of them or the ones that are recorded here the presence of Jesus actually exposes what's going on inside their hearts later on in chapter 23 Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs now think about that he's saying you look pretty good on the outside you're upright you're moral you're religious all of that sort of thing but in your heart you're dead you're spiritually dead. Moral and religious on the outside, but in their hearts they reject God. You see, no matter how good or moral a person may be, their true attitude towards God is revealed by their attitude towards Jesus. That is the litmus test. If a person rejects Jesus, then no matter who they are, no matter what they say, They do not love God because their true attitude towards God is most clearly seen by how they respond to Jesus. Now, these Pharisees were play actors. Um, Very few people had the discernment to be able to see that. But each time they interacted with Jesus, one more layer of of their hypocrisy is being peeled away until their hearts are ultimately exposed as being unrepentant. See, think about the contrast here, because the pagan Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. But in verse 41, these Pharisees have rejected God in the flesh. That is how evil they are. Now, in verse 42, Jesus shames them even further. Um, Have a look at that. The Queen of the South, he says, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Uh, Who's the Queen of the South? The Queen of 
Sheba. Does anyone know where Sheba is? It's probably Yemen. Um, it's in southwest of Arabia. Yep, there, there, there was some sort of stuff about Ethiopia as well, but the scholars say it's probably Yemen, okay? Which is about 1,900 kilometres uh, one way from Jerusalem. That is a long journey. But about 100 years before Solomon, they, they domesticated the camel. And uh, that made a huge difference. That was what made it possible for someone like the Queen of Sheba to travel to Jerusalem. Although, I have to say, 1,900 kilometres through the desert on the back of a, you know, being pulled along by a camel, is, you know, she had a fair amount of commitment, didn't she, <laughs> to make that trip. Uh, Jesus' point is that a pagan monarch had such respect for God's king, Solomon, that she made that trip. But now, a greater king, one whom Solomon pointed towards, one whom Solomon is but a mere foreshadowing of, a greater king is right there in front of them and they don't want to know about him. They reject him. They despise him. And that's the evil of their hearts exposed. Now, friends, in these verses, we are reminded of how Gentiles responded to the sign of Jonah and to the kingship of Solomon. Both of these things, the sign of, of Jonah and the kingship of Solomon, are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was resurrected on the third day as Jonah came from the belly of the fish. Jesus now rules from heaven as God's king, as Solomon pointed towards. So Jonah and Solomon fulfilled in Jesus, resurrected and now the ascended king. In Acts chapter 2, uh, the apostle Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost and he spoke about the resurrection of Jesus and he said that uh, God had raised Jesus to life. We are eyewitnesses of that. And listen to what he said. He said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. By his resurrection, Jesus is the greater Jonah. By his kingship, he is the greater Solomon. So how will you respond? The clergy said to Jesus, why don't you give us a sign? And Jesus basically said, well, how about a man rising from the dead? Will that do the trick for you? Will that be good enough? What are the odds of that happening? Um, these days, people still ask for a sign. Um, I, some non-Christians, uh, sometimes you'll hear non-Christians saying, you know, if God, if God performed a sign, a miracle that I could see, then maybe I'd you know, have a bit, of, bit more of a think about it sort of thing. How do you answer that? For myself, I want to uh, say to them, well, 
actually God has already performed the greatest miracle that, that there possibly is. And I tell them about the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus is the critical point of Christian truth. Um, not denying creation and sin and judgment and the atonement, but the resurrection, you see, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then the Pharisees are right, aren't they? Uh, he's an imposter. It's a hoax. And we're still in our sins. So what I do is I ask people to read the Gospels for themselves. Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Because as they, say, as they do that, they'll see that, that there is something about Jesus which is absolutely unique. And that there's good reason to believe that something incredible did happen after his death. That he did rise from the dead. That there were uh, followers of Jesus who were disheartened, dispirited, who wanted to go back to fishing. But after the resurrection, they were transformed into men of passion and vigour who preached uh, clearly that Christ had risen from the grave and they were prepared to go to, go to, go to death for, for preaching that themselves. That is how convinced that they were that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. It's a pivotal point. And if that is true, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then what he said about himself, the claims that he made, are claims that we need to take with the greatest degree of seriousness. For it means that he is now Lord. It means that his death has indeed paid for sin. And as the king of the Ninevites declared to his own people they should urgently therefore call on God give up their evil ways and throw themselves on the compassion of God the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were evil because they rejected Jesus they rejected his resurrection because even after the resurrection took place they went and bribed the soldiers who were guarding the tomb to tell people that it didn't happen that is how evil they were. Um, by the way, sometimes there are Christian people who are always seeking after a fresh miracle from God. And what I want to say to them is, well, you actually need to go back to the resurrection. Don't be seeking for new signs, fresh evidences, fresh experiences. Go back to the indisputable facts of the resurrection because that is where our faith is grounded. But friends, there are spiritual leaders today who still will not accept the resurrection. Uh, there are spiritual leaders, heads of churches and denominations who um, are pretty blunt about it. Some just say, well, the resurrection never happened. Uh, you know, Jesus, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it sort of thing. And they're usually easy to detect, those people. But there, there are some leaders, some spiritual, spiritually in inverted commas leaders who are far more subtle in their rejection of the resurrection. And so we actually need to be a bit discerning ourselves and be able to read between the lines and look at what people are actually saying. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Um, you know, at Easter time uh, is an interesting time to find out what people believe. Uh, at Easter time, the denominational leaders, often their Easter message is quoted in the newspapers and on the TV and so on. And I picked this one up in 2006. In 2006, the respected leader of one of our 
one of our major denominations in Australia uh, said this in the Herald, and I quote, listen very carefully. He said, the true meaning of the resurrection has been pushed out of sight and reduced to that of an escape for disembodied souls. Instead of it, the resurrection, being about the recreation of the earth and human society being put right, we've turned it into an otherworldly concern to do with going to heaven when you die. End of quote. He then went on to say that the resurrection is about caring for the environment better. The, uh, politically correct, isn't it? And you can imagine people saying, great, the church has finally gotten relevant on the resurrection and applauding that. And, of course, we should be trying to work good in human society and we should be looking after the environment. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying that if you believe that the resurrection of Jesus means that you can have eternal life, you're wrong. You know, you've pushed aside the true meaning of the resurrection. We need to regain the true meaning of the res resurrection, which he says the resurrection is being about being inspired to do good. And suddenly when you think about it, you realise that this eminent church leader is saying something which is actually quite evil because he's denying, in effect, the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. And that's significant. That is important because what he's doing is he's leading people away from the gospel. He's leading people away from trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the means by which we can obtain eternal life. So be careful and be discerning. Well, there's two more points in this passage and uh, we don't have much time left, so I'm just going to briefly skim through some stuff which really requires a lot longer time uh, briefly in verses 43 to 45 Jesus there talks about uh, if, if an evil spirit is uh, uh, is driven out from you uh, and your life is left empty then you're going to get seven evil spirits coming back and filling your life uh, what is that saying well I think that Jesus is warning that receiving the cleansing work of Jesus is not enough because you've got to be filling your life with the good things of God. It's not just about trusting in what Jesus has done, it's about repentance as well. But then in verse 46, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to, the, to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I read a commentary during the week and the, uh, uh, and the author was saying it's a real shame that Jesus didn't put something in there a bit more positive about his family as well, a bit more respectful. To which I thought, no, that's not a shame. You know, Jesus said what he wanted to say and we don't judge what Jesus says. Right? In fact, Jesus is not being disrespectful. This is 
great news. What Jesus is saying here ought to uh, cause our hearts to rejoice, to, to break forth in praise to him because he's talking about who is his family. So who is his family? What kind of people belong to the family of Jesus and therefore the family of God? Well, what does he say? Whoever does the will of my Father. And who's that? Well, he points to those who are his followers. And this, in this passage, let me point this out to you. In this passage, that includes an ancient pagan queen. In verse 42, the fact that she will stand condemning the Pharisees means that she's part of the family as well. Let me tell you something else. In the family of Jesus, there are thousands and thousands of Assyrians, of ancient Assyrians, of people who had persecuted God's people, of people who at one time were the enemies of God's people. Guess what? They're part of the family. Because on that great day of judgment, they will actually be standing there judging the Pharisees and those teachers of the law. They're part of the family. Not because they were religious. Not because they were good. Not because they were born into the nation of Israel. For they were none of those things. It was because the Assyrians trusted in the sign of Jonah and they turned to God in faith and repentance. And the Queen of Sheba, well, she looked at God's king. She'd heard about him and she said, I want a part of that. And she honoured him and she worshipped him. So what about you? Are you part of the family? Do you trust that Jesus rose from the dead? And do you honour him as king of your life? If so... You're in the family. Not only now, but forever, with all the other believers, with the disciples, with the Queen of Sheba, and with a whole stack of Assyrians. How about that? What are the odds of that happening, eh? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your incredible compassion and mercy towards those of us who are sinners we thank you Father God for uh, the sign of Jonah uh, for the resurrection of Jesus from the grave and we thank you that the ascended Jesus is now the greater Solomon that he is our King our Lord we pray for each one of us here Father that we would uh, not be like whitewashed tombs that we wouldn't be people who uh, simply uh, have it all looking good on the outside but inwardly are not trusting in you help us to be those who are in the family and we pray this in Jesus name Amen